Welcome to the Free to Be More podcast by the Enoch Pratt Free Library. I'm your host, Megan McCorkle. This podcast series features conversations with leaders and innovators having a positive impact in our city. Let's get started. Your journey starts here. His name has become synonymous with one of the hottest issues in Annapolis this session, education. Dr. William Britt Kerwin is the head of the Commission on Innovation and Excellence in Education, more commonly known as the Kerwin Commission. It's a plan for sweeping overhaul of education across the state that's led to a funding fight that has dominated this legislative session. Dr. Kerwin, thank you so much for joining us. Pleasure to be here. So tell us, for people that don't know, about your background in education and how you came to be the head of what's now known (laughs) as the Kerwin Commission. Right. Well, I I grew up the son of a university professor Mm -hmm. who actually became president of a university. I grew up in Lexington, Kentucky, Mm -hmm. and my father was associated with the University of Kentucky. He was a history professor and uh, uh, later the president of the university, and uh, the academic life was uh, sort of embedded in in me from the earliest uh, (laughs) uh, ages. Mm -hmm. So I was good in mathematics and loved mathematics. So the idea of going to graduate school and getting a PhD in mathematics was very appealing, which I did at uh, Rutgers University. Uh And then uh, came to the University of Maryland in 1964 as an assistant professor of mathematics and sort of worked through the ranks never aspiring to being an administrator. I just wanted to be the best research and mathematician and professor I could possibly be. Mm-hmm. And well, it came time for me to do my turn as chair of the department. <laughs> and so I did that. And then the next thing I knew, I was provost of the university and then president and uh, for 10 years at College Park in 1988 to 98. And then I went to Ohio State as president um, and then came back to Maryland in 2002 as a chancellor of the university system of Maryland and stayed in that position till 2015 when I stepped down, thought it was time to retire and <laughs> smell the roses, enjoy life. And how long did that last? Well, not very long because that summer I stepped down in June and that summer I got a call from Annapolis, uh, from the president, Senate president's office talking to me, uh, would I think about uh, becoming chair of this commission mm-hmm. and uh, thinking, okay, it's uh, I'm, <laughs> I'm an educator. I love education. I've not worked in pre-K through 12 education, but if the state thinks I can make a contribution, and they said, you know, it'll only take a year. It's a year-long commission. <laughs> and so I said, sure, I'll do it. And so in the 2016 session, mm-hmm. This bipartisan effort, really, and I think that's a point worth making mm-hmm. because this was a joint effort by Governor Hogan and the General Assembly to create this uh, commission with a very specific charge, really quite a amazing charge, uh, make recommendations so that Maryland schools would perform at the level of the best performing school systems in the world mm-hmm. and then develop cost estimates and a funding formula. Sure to support these recommendations. So, you know, the idea that we were going to spend more money was embedded in this uh, in, in the charge to the commission. Mm-hmm. So this 25-member commission got put together with me as chair, and it was just a very eclectic group. Mm-hmm. Essentially, every organization that is connected to pre-K through 12 education was represented from the collective bargaining units to 
the PTA, mm-hmm. to the superintendents, to the state board, higher education, eight members of the General Assembly, the business community. So it was a really a diverse set of people on the commission. And many of us didn't know each other. And I think one of the things about it is that, you know, everybody came to the commission thinking they knew how they could fix whatever problems Mm -hmm. there were in education. (laughs) But the problem was there were 25 different opinions, Mm -hmm. basically. Uh, You know, everybody's an expert in K through 12 education, Uh, you know, because all of us have been to K uh, school. So we know what the issues are and the problems that can be fixed. So, I mean, that was a challenge as chair to try to develop a consensus uh, among such a uh, diverse set of people representing such a diverse set of organizations. But I will say that I think most of us came to the commission thinking this wasn't going to be all that difficult because Maryland schools, uh, we'd read the press clippings, Maryland schools were supposed to be among the best in the country. And so, okay, we might have a problem here or there. We can fix, you know, fix that. Mm-hmm. and and um, be on our way. But in order to do our due diligence, we had to dig into exactly what is the state of the Maryland schools. Incidentally, uh, let me go back just a second to the charge, which was really very audacious. I mean, you think about it, as good as the best in the world. Mm -hmm. But I so admire the vision that both the governor and the General Assembly had, because when you think about it, That's the right charge. I mean, in today's economy, we don't want to talk about what's happening with the stock market right now, but (laughs) in today's economy, (laughs) uh, you know, both the success of a community, a state, and individuals requires people to be well-educated and have skills because that's what drives the modern economy. And it's what gives individuals a chance for success in life. And so it was audacious in the sense that as good as the best in the world mm-hmm. is a pretty high bar. But if we want to be have an economy as good as the world, we want all of our, our children to have as good an opportunity as children anywhere in the world, that's the right charge. Mm-hmm. So um, I, I commend them from that. But in any case, back to our due diligence, we had to see where are Maryland schools right now? And it was a real eye-opener. And I think a, a very important contribution of the commission has been to highlight the great deficiencies in our pre-K through 12 sure. system, which was an eye-opener, certainly for the members of the commission, but also, I think, for the citizens of states who followed this work. First yeah. of all, you know, there's a national exam given to fourth and eighth graders Mm -hmm. because of the NAEP exam, National Assessment of Education Progress. It's mandated by the federal government, same exam given in every state in the union. So it's a fair comparison. What are our kids learning in relation to other Mm -hmm. states? And the first shocking thing was that, you know, on these four exams, reading and math, fourth and eighth grade, there's four exams, we're at or below the median in almost every case. Mm. So this didn't sound like one of the best school systems in the country. So that was the first thing. The second thing was, uh, and this was a shocker, you know, we think of Maryland as being a progressive state, relatively liberal state and progressive. But what we learned is when it comes to school funding, we are a regressive state Mm. in the sense that we spend more money 
on kids living in affluent communities than we do on kids living in concentrated poverty, Mm -hmm. which is just the opposite of what should happen. Sure. Because those kids, the ones growing up in poverty, they need more support. the opposite uh, of equity. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And one of the real shocks, and, and, you know, this is something that can't be tolerated and allowed to continue, is that if you look at schools that have 85% or less of what they were projected to have uh, when the Thornton formula, that's the predecessor funding formula that's currently in operation. Mm -hmm. The Thornton, the predecessor commission, the Thornton Commission Mm -hmm. created a formula, and it said what schools should have out into the future. And if you look at schools that have 85% or less of what they're supposed to have, it turns out that 52% of African-Americans attend such schools, mm-hmm. and 8% of white students do. Now, that's an inequity that, uh, it, it, you know, is a stuff is the stuff of a, a lawsuit mm-hmm. against the state. Because it's, uh So that was a shock. And then we learned that teaching has become a revolving door. Teacher retention is pathetic. Mm-hmm. And is that across the state, or is it really across concentrated? Across the state, absolutely. So across it's not concentrated state. in areas no, of No, definitely oh? not. Uh, it, one piece of data is that two years after getting a teaching preparation degree uh-huh. program and certified, two years after that, uh, 47% of teachers leave the profession. Wow. So, you know, how are you going to build strong schools with that kind of turnover uh-huh. uh, in the teacher? The bottom line, and this was what told us we had a very severe problem in Maryland is that fewer than 40%, this ought to keep everybody up at night, fewer than 40% of high school graduates are deemed college and career ready when they leave high school. At present, this means they can't pass a 10th grade reading assessment Mm. and an Algebra 1 assessment. Wow. Now, Algebra 1 is an 8th grade course. Yeah. They don't pass an Algebra 1 assessment. So over 60% of our high school graduates are in that category. And, you know, that's a frightening statistic when you think about what this will mean for Maryland's workforce Mm -hmm. in the future. And secondly... What opportunity are this vast majority of these graduates, uh, you know, it's going to have with, you know, having those kinds of education deficiencies. So to me, there's, all, you know, there's an economic argument. We need a workforce. We need a high quality workforce. But there's also a moral argument. I mean, how can a state allow the, the Constitution of Maryland says that Maryland must maintain an effective and efficient system of K through 12 education. Mm -hmm. If over 60% of our high school graduates are not ready for entering the world in a productive way, uh, we're not meeting our responsibility to to the Constitution of the state. And so, you know, this came down on the commission like a ton of bricks, knowing uh, how much we had to do. So then the question was, well, if we're going to make recommendations so we can be as good as the best, how do we go about making these recommendations? Well, exactly. So Somehow Providence was looking after us because we found this really high-quality, highly regarded think tank in Washington, D.C. called the National Center for Education and the Economy. Mm -hmm. And they have a sterling reputation. They've existed for decades. They spent the last 20 years studying the elements, the building blocks 
of high-performing school systems internationally. Mm -hmm. So we brought them in as a consultant. We took their building blocks, and basically we spent an intense period of time, over a year, doing a really deep dive with a gap analysis. Here are the building blocks. Here's what high performers do. Here's what we do in Maryland. Mm -hmm. And so our report basically was taking those best practices and adapting them to the Maryland context. Mm -hmm. And this led to our five big policy elements uh, that constitute our report. Travel the world. Your journey starts at the Pratt Library, now offering passport services seven days a week at the Central Library. Fill out paperwork for a new passport or get your photo taken for your renewal. More details at prattlibrary.org. I want to dig into some of the five big recommendations. The first one really centers around early childhood education, specifically public funding for three- and four-year-olds in low-income households to attend full-day preschool. When the kids in those households are not getting that education when they're three and they're four, how much are they falling behind when they walk into kindergarten? You're exactly right. That's the issue, that we just need way more kids coming to kindergarten ready to learn. Mm -hmm. I've seen data, I don't remember the actual number, but it's staggering the difference in a vocabulary on average, of a kid that grows up in a household with struggling resources versus a middle-class or upper-middle-class kids. The the comparison in just their vocabulary, Uh it's astounding. Uh So how do, if a kid from a low-income family and an upper-middle-class are coming into the same kindergarten, you know, there's such a disadvantage there from the start. So, uh, yes, in order to get way more kids ready to learn when, Uh uh, when they start school in kindergarten... Full day, high quality. I want to underline high quality. Uh High quality preschool available to all uh, low-income three- and four-year-olds. But the commission recognized that that's not enough. Uh So much happens in the mental development of young people between zero and three. And uh, I I forget, again, the statistic, but you'd be amazed at what fraction of brain development occurs between zero and three. Uh, We have in the state some very good resources. Uh, We have the family uh, service centers. They're located in uh, low-income districts, and this is a service that works with uh, mothers, both pre- and postnatal, helps them understand about nutrition and child-rearing and parenting. And then there's another service called the Judy Centers, and these work with uh, three-year-olds and lower and with families and help with the beginnings of uh, education and parenting, and mm-hmm. et cetera. So uh, these are phenomenal resources. We just don't have enough of them. Sure. And so another part of this particular policy area was a big increase in the number of family support centers and the Judy Centers. So we feel like these recommendations really address age zero to five when they would start kindergarten, and we'd have a lot more kids ready to learn. Are there other states that are providing that public funding for low-income Well, there are examples, Okay, but I don't think there is any state that has such a comprehensive set of recommendations for the zero to five age group. 
Yeah, it does make sense. I, You know, I see I have a two-year-old niece who, if I don't see her for a month or two, then suddenly I'm like, you've learned so much <laughs> in the past few months. Right. You're like a different it, person it now. So it makes sense that right. so much development yeah. happens no, I, right I'm, now. I'm very, uh, well, I'm proud of the report, but I'm very proud of this uh, recommendation because, you know, initially the commission didn't see its role going down below preschool, but as we looked at the research and heard from experts, we understood that you can't leave zero to three unattended because that's just such an important uh, period of time in a child's life. Well, it's interesting because kindergarten, really, you look at that as a starting line. And right. if some people are starting that far behind the starting exactly. line, how do they ever catch up? Exactly. So the second recommendation really centers around teachers and teacher right. preparedness, the salaries we pay teacher, the training for teachers. What needs to happen yeah. so that Maryland well, you know, can be world class? Yeah, it, it is one of the things we learned is there is no high-performing school system in the world where teaching isn't considered a high-status profession mm -hmm. in that country. Mm -hmm. So teaching is thought of as like being a lawyer or an architect, mm -hmm. uh, a CPA, and that's just the culture in these countries. Mm -hmm. Sadly, that's not the culture in the United States. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it is so, when you think about it, it is so odd and so unfortunate that here's the profession that probably has more to do with the future of our country and future opportunities for our children than teaching. It's, you know... And yet we treat all the other professions with more uh, respect mm -hmm. and, and, and uh, et cetera. And this is a huge lift because we're going against an embedded culture of the way people have approached teachers and the level of support and sure. the level of expectations of the profession. And so even the perception. The perception, uh, yeah. absolutely. And, and so uh, what we've recommended is, you know, we have to change this. And the way we are going about it, or at least our recommendations suggest, is first of all, we have to put significant pressure on the teacher preparation program. So I come out of higher education and I'm telling higher education, you got to do a lot better job, mm -hmm. not only in terms of content knowledge, but also the skills to create a positive learning environment. I don't know whether you'd call these as soft skills or whatever mm -hmm. within a classroom, classroom management, how to understand and overcome implicit bias how to address issues of conflict in the classroom. There's mm -hmm. strategies called restorative practices, mm -hmm. which unfortunately teachers don't learn about yeah. in their teacher preparation program. So we, we've, uh, first of all, talked about really upgrading the quality of the teacher preparation programs. Then secondly, set much higher standards for certification. Mm -hmm. You know, if you want to become a lawyer, I think the pass rate is somewhere between 50 and 60 percent. I mean, it's a serious test yeah, to pass hard. the bar. Mm -hmm. There are areas of K-12 through teaching where the pass rate's like 98 percent. That's not a standard. Mm -hmm. And so raise the certification standards. And then we're recommending paying teachers on a merit-based career ladder. So teachers would now have a merit-based career ladder where compensation would be benchmarked against other professions requiring similar levels of education. Then when kids go to college and they're thinking about, do I want to be a doctor, a lawyer, or engineer, a CPA, 
teaching becomes in that mix mm-hmm. because, you know, I'm not going to have to sacrifice salary. Uh, I'm going to be paid comparably, and I'm going to be in a profession that respects and rewards performance. So those are the recommendations, uh, sort of uh, summary of the recommendations in this policy bucket. And uh, again, I, I think they're exactly what our country needs. Is I don't underestimate the difficulty in making this change. Mm-hmm. The third recommendation is interesting because we think about when kids graduate and they're ready to go to college, that would be 12th grade. Right. But you're looking at college preparedness and readiness being completed by 10th grade. Right. Why would that be so important? Well, so we want to set the expectation that by the 10th grade, young people are ready. They have enough information to begin college-level work. Mm-hmm. So after the 10th grade, when kids reach that standard— then they would have three pathways available to them. One of them would be they could take advanced placement or international baccalaureate, which produces college credit. Mm-hmm. Or they could start early college, earn credits while they were in high school, maybe even complete a two-year degree before they finish. And here's a really big idea in this recommendation. The third pathway is to make a rigorous high standards career and technical education pathway leading to an industry-recognized credential. You know, for a long time, there was this sort of talk of every kid's got to go to college. Mm -hmm. That's not necessary. There are great jobs out there. And college isn't for everybody. Mm -hmm. There are great jobs out there, high-paying jobs Mm -hmm. in this highly technical word, coding, uh, cybersecurity. You know, a lot of companies, Apple and Google, they're trying to take kids right out of high school Mm -hmm. and give them the skill they need to just go straight to work. And, you know... The industry is crying out for this, Mm -hmm. but nobody in the country is systematically providing that kind of pathway uh, for kids. So we're calling for bringing the trades and the private sector into. They will be a partner with education in setting the standards so that when kids finish, if they choose this pathway— they're ready to go into, with an industry-certified credential, into high-paying jobs. So this is a big— Uh, we'd be the first state to have such a comprehensive, rigorous career and technical education pathway, which is commonplace in the highest performing systems uh, around the world. Mm -hmm. I just read an article today that was talking about how those technical skills are so much more needed, even though there's this drilled into everybody, you must go to college. Uh, Exactly. Well, and, and, and to think about it, I mean, somebody could choose this pathway, start earning a really nice salary, Decide, you know what, I do want to get a college yeah. degree. Go part-time or drop out of the job and go to college, having earned a significant amount of money, and then finish with no debt. Mm-hmm. Hey, that's not a bad uh, a bad. Uh, that's very <laughs> rare these in this, days, in this isn't day it? Age, with kids uh, racking up, you know, just uh, uh, such significant oh. and overburdening debt. Mm-hmm. The fourth recommendation I think is really interesting, especially here in right. Baltimore City. It's providing more resources, especially in right. schools in high-poverty areas, which certainly would encompass most of Baltimore right. City. What are some of those resources? Uh, because you talked about teachers coming into the classroom right. and kids coming in and there being things happening at home that right. teachers are really not equipped for. So what kind of resources could be in right. those schools to help kids? Yeah, well, this this recommendation, uh, you've described the issue well. Uh, this recommendation is all about addressing the funding equity 
issues that I talked about, mm-hmm. making Maryland a progressive, not a regressive state. Mm-hmm. So what are the kinds of things that would be involved here? Well, um, uh, we're calling for any school that has 55% or more, which seems to be an important dividing line, 55% or more low-income uh, students as measured by eligible for free and reduced uh, mm-hmm. lunch, would become what's called a community school. Mm-hmm. Community school is a very specific term, and it's a school that has additional resources. So what's in the school? They have social service workers in the school. They're part of the staff in the mm-hmm. school. Extra counseling, emotional counseling, health care counseling. Uh, people in the school that are connected to services in the community that can be brought in and, and support uh, the students in the school. It also becomes a locus of community activity. Mm-hmm. Parents are invited into the school. Services are provided to the parents. Then there's extra tutoring in the school, mm-hmm. resources for extra tutoring. There's after-school academic program. There's summer academic program. And then another big idea is some people may know, I guess uh, people can appreciate that uh, funding formulas for K through 12 education have sort of a basic foundation amount. And then for certain categories of children, there's an extra weight uh, supplied. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes. So there's a compensatory weight for low income kids. So low income kids gets the foundation amount plus some extra weight, special ed, English as a second sure. language. Yep. But what we, what we learned is that the degree of concentrated poverty is also a factor in the school. So it's not just enough to give the compensatory weight for each of the low-income kids, but as a degree of concentrated poverty rises from 55% to 65% to 75% to 90%, the challenges in the school grow. Mm -hmm. And so uh, extra money, we're calling for extra money to be given so that schools serving, let's say, a community where it's 90% or above concentrated poverty would get extra money beyond the compensatory weight for each kid Mm -hmm. because it does have an impact on the quality of education that can be provided. So this is going to make a big change and, as I say, will make Maryland uh, a leader because uh, it will move into the very progressive category in terms of addressing these uh, the equity of funding. Mm-hmm. Be counted at the Pratt. Participate in Census 2020 at your local library. Trained staff can help guide you through the process to make sure our state gets its fair share of federal funds. We'll also host special Census Sunday hours during the month of April. Find all the information and more at prattlibrary.org. And the last really key recommendation, I think, is one of the most important is accountability. I think there's a narrative out there, at least within Baltimore City, that schools have tons of funding, that that students are some of the best funded. So what is happening? And whether that narrative is true or not, how do you feel like this recommendation will quell all of that statewide? Because there will be a higher level of accountability. Right. One of the things I learned as I traveled around the state, and Lord knows I must have given 200 talks or at least <laughs> mm-hmm. to every every group uh, you can imagine wants to hear about uh, the uh, commission and the findings. Um, but as I traveled around and talked to business leaders and others, this issue of accountability was paramount. And for rightly or wrongly, 
the perception is that when the predecessor commission was created, um, accountability broke down, mm-hmm. that there was uh, additional funds invested, but nobody really followed up to ensure that the funds were being used as intended and were getting uh, results. The previous commission was chaired by a good friend of mine, Alvin Thornton. Mm-hmm. And when I talked to Alvin about why didn't we get better results, sure. he tells me accountability broke down. Mm-hmm. And, you know, rightly or wrongly, the perception is out there that the accountability has to be beyond the State Board of Education, mm-hmm. that there needs to be some sense that there is a group uh, specially appointed um, uh, to ensure at the top of the accountability uh, pyramid that can have the credibility and to assure the public that the money is being spent as intended. So we've called for this uh, oversight board, which would be a group of six or so, six or seven highly respected citizens of the state. Mm-hmm. And they would be, apart from the education bureaucracy, they would be maybe some retired corporate CEOs, education experts, uh, Yes, uh, would be included. People who worked in large organizations requiring systemic change. Mm -hmm. But they would be there to provide the stamp of approval for the public Mm -hmm. that the money was being spent as intended and that we were getting the results that we want to see. And these would both be tied to funding. So funding would be directly connected to faithful implementation of the recommendation. And uh, when that didn't occur in a particular school district, funds would be placed in escrow Mm -hmm. until that school district got the blessing of this oversight board that they had had faithfully implemented the recommendations. Then, of course, the escrow funds would flow. And then, you know, if we're not getting the results, then uh, the oversight board and the state board of education would send in a particular school, would send in teams of experts, and they would be attached to that school to get it on track and get the results that we all want to see. So, you know, we've had experts from around the country look at the entire report and praise it, but they've looked specifically at the accountability. And Mm -hmm. they say two things. First of all, it's unique. And secondly, it's what needs to happen to ensure we get the right results. So, uh, this was a big issue with me, the accountability, sure. and I feel, again, very good about uh, the work we, the commission did on and coming up with this recommendation. And part of the reason accountability is so important is that the price tag for something yes, like this is. is not right. small, about $4 billion <laughs> a year over the next 10 years. No, well, uh, let's, uh, let me put it, let me phrase it slightly differently. <laughs> uh, it's a 10-year implementation uh-huh. plan, and it's going to take 10 years. This is a wholesale change. Oh, yeah. we're, we're building a whole new system sweeping. of pre- sweeping change, uh-huh. yes. And so uh, the recommendations get phased in. So at the 10th year, we would be spending as a state $4 billion more than we had planned to spend under the Thornton uh, formula. Uh-huh. So it starts out with uh, relatively modestly and builds up. Uh-huh. And the uh, $4 billion would be divided between the state in the local jurisdictions. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think the state provides about $2.4 billion and the local jurisdictions would need to match that uh, roughly $1.6 billion. Mm-hmm. Now, the contributions of the local jurisdictions is wealth equalized. 
uh, meaning that the richer jurisdictions Mm -hmm. don't get as much state support and have to provide more of the local match. Mm -hmm. Lower income districts uh, get more state support and, and, you know, don't provide as much match. And that's the way it should be. I mean, wealth equalizing formulas like this is fairly common sure. around around the country, and it, it's it's very logical. But the point is, everybody benefits from this funding. Everybody's going to be a winner in terms of getting a lot more resources into our schools. Now, of course, the question is, or well, where's the money going to come yeah, from? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you've, um, you've asked my question. <laughs> <laughs> well, the uh, the General Assembly wisely last year set aside the first three years of the uh-huh. state match. So that, that, that that's now uh, uh, covered. Uh, the good news is that for many of the jurisdictions, uh, I think 17 of the 24, the match isn't going to be a big deal. Because at the rate they are currently spending, increasing spending in, in K through 12 education, they're going to meet the match that's required. Uh, as I say, it's not a big lift for uh, the vast majority of the jurisdictions. There are a few jurisdictions in Baltimore City, being one of them, mm-hmm. where the lift is quite frankly too great. Sure, Prince and George's County as well. Prince George's, and there's a few few rural districts where mm-hmm. that where that's the case. The commission recognized this and made, you know, said in its report that something's going to have to be done sure. about this. We didn't make a, we did not make a spe- specific recommendation, but the General Assembly is hard at work at this, and I can say with high confidence that there will be an index that will be used to measure jurisdictions that have reasonably met what could be expected based on the current tax rates and mm-hmm. the wealth of the district. And they're going to get a relief if they're, if the cost of them it puts them above this index. Mm-hmm. Then they're going to get extra relief. So we don't know the details of that yet, but within a week or so, mm-hmm. that will be out there. And I think it will reassure communities like Baltimore that, mm-hmm. yes, this is doable. The state is stepping in. We are getting extra help, and we can make this happen. Mm-hmm. Do you think that there's any way to fully fund all these recommendations without raising taxes? Well, let me put it slightly different. Without additional tax revenue, mm-hmm. I don't know that you necessarily need to raise taxes. Mm-hmm. There will be uh, new tax revenue sources coming to the state. We're collecting internet sales tax at a much higher rate now. Mm -hmm. There's talk of putting tax on internet advertising. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm not an advocate for this, but there's lots of thought that recreational marijuana will be approved Mm -hmm. at some point. And I want to make very clear, I'm not (laughs) not in any way advocating that Mm -hmm. that be done. But that's an example of something new that could come into the tax revenue. I mean, if that happened, there would be significant revenue that would come from the sale of a recreational marijuana. I think it's um, it, it, it's also possible to adjust the sales tax in some way without raising the sales tax, mm-hmm. but adjusting the sales tax. So uh, there will definitely have to be new revenue. I, I'm, I'm not in any way. Sure. But I just wanted to—I I, I don't think it necessarily means that— Taxes have to be raised. Mm-hmm. We have to collect more tax money, but that can be done by taxing new things that haven't been taxed before or making some adjustments in rates on, on specific items. But I want to say something else about, about the funding. Um, 
you know, people, oh, can we, can we afford this? Can we afford this? You know, this is a really a moment of truth for our state because there isn't going to be another commission mm-hmm. in, you know, for decades. Mm-hmm. And it's all going to be decided this session and, you know, over the next 35 days or so. Mm-hmm. And so really there are two options. I mean, we can accept the status quo and allow over 60% of our high school graduates to be entering adulthood, undereducated, mm-hmm. and think about the consequences of that for our workforce, for the chances they're going to have a successful life. Or, you know, we can be bold, make this investment, become a national leader, have a world-class workforce, give every kid in every zip code a chance mm-hmm. to pursue the American dream. So I think it's when those who say, can we afford it, I think we, you can also turn that around and say, can we afford not to do this? After all, you know, the total amount of money required and the overall amount of money spent by the state mm-hmm. Uh, state and local is a pretty small amount of money. Mm-hmm. And and there's another point I want to make. Unlike what a lot of people think, we're not a particularly big investor in pre-K through 12 education as mm-hmm. a state. We ought to be embarrassed as a state. We are, after all, the wealthiest, at least based on uh, household median income. We're sure. the wealthiest state in the nation. Mm-hmm. So think about this for a second. Um, there's a study out, uh, there's a group, uh, a law center at, at Rutgers University that studies funding equity and measures states. We get a C, incidentally. Mm-hmm. Uh, in, no, not just funding equity, in school funding. We get a C. Mm-hmm. And they look at equity and the and the overall effort. So um, they do this in a wealth-equalized way because different regions have different, you know, uh, cost factors. So, But that's the way you measure the priority that a state is committing to uh, education. So think about this. We rank 19th in per-pupil funding in pre-K through 12 education. Mm-hmm. 19th in the country. Mm-hmm. And we're, yet we're the wealthiest state in sure. the union. And Now just suppose all this money, the $4 billion, was there tomorrow. Where would we rank? Mm-hmm. Seventh. Think about that. Yes. I mean, we wouldn't even be the biggest spender. Uh-huh. So the funding isn't like we're asking <laughs> to go to another planet in, in terms of the magnitude of the of expenditure. I mean, uh, some oh, otherworldly amount yeah. of money. We'd only be up among the leaders. Mm-hmm. Does it worry you? Um, you, know, Governor Hogan has um, feels like almost like actively campaigned and been very outspoken about the fact that he will not raise taxes right. to fund this right. plan. Does that worry you that it could well, derail it, it? Yeah, well, it, it it worries me greatly. And uh, I'm very sorry that he's taken this position because, um, you know, I think he has a, an especially important responsibility for ensuring the future of well-being of our state. So I'm, you know, I find it's been quite upsetting to see um, hear things he said, uh, see the actions he's taken. So, yes, that, uh, that has been a disappointment because he was involved in, in creating the commission. Mm-hmm. I um, I want to make one other point. Um, that a lot of people in the business community are behind this, believe me. I mean, oh, it's yeah. huge because they looked into the future and see mm-hmm. what it means. So a group of business leaders gave our report to SAGE uh, Policy mm-hmm. uh, Institute, yep. And uh, Anibon Basu and said, okay, here's the report. Let's say they get, you know, we implement it. We get to where we want to be. What would be the real return on investment? 
when you think about it. So if we have many more kids coming out of school with a high-quality education, then they're going to earn more money. State's going to have more revenue. Moreover, who's incarcerated now? It's overwhelmingly low-income kids who didn't get a good education mm-hmm. and have to do, you know, they turn to crime. They have to make a, a living. So if they're better educated, incarceration costs go down. And then we have a huge commitment to make the federal match for Medicaid. If people are better educated, they've got a, a better job, they've got health care. So our match goes down. So anyway, Annie Bond uh, studies this and puts out his report and points out that in 10 or 12 years, this pays for itself. Mm-hmm. So that's what people should focus on. I mean, this will, right now, people are spending money, tax money, to keep people in jail. Mm-hmm. It costs fifty to $60,000 a year to keep somebody in jail. So their tax money's going there. Now, would you rather do that or invest in the schools? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Take the same dollars, invest in the schools, mm-hmm. And get a much better result for the economy of the state and the welfare of uh, all of our citizens. So I just I regret that somehow we as a state haven't been able to think about this in a bigger ROI in the long terms. Run. And, and we're looking too narrowly at what's it going to cost me tomorrow rather than what's important for the future of our state and its children. Mm-hmm. My last question for you. If all of the recommendations are adopted, they're fully funded, what does specifically education in Baltimore City look like in 10 years? Well, (laughs) it looks a lot different than what it does now. You know, um, 60 to 70 percent of our kids getting to the 10th grade, uh, college and career ready, following one of these uh, pathways, an economic renaissance in the city because we've got so much better educated young people, uh, uh, safer communities. It's, um, it would be a true transformation and renaissance for this city. And, uh, you know, I, I've often said, people ask me, how do you know this will happen? And it goes back to my background. I'm a mathematician. <laughs> Mathematicians are, by nature, skeptical. You have to prove something in mathematics. I mean, you know, you got an axiom system and yeah. you've got one step follows another. And, you know, you've got to have a logical flow to an endpoint that uh, is a conclusion. And the reason I am so confident about this is we studied so hard the elements that make successful school systems. And we have transported these strategies and adapted them to the Maryland circumstances. They work in all these other school systems. They will work here if we just have the will and the perseverance to make the full implementation. Dr. Kerwin, thank you so much for joining us. Well, I enjoyed it. Thank you for having me. Open up a world of make-believe at the Imagination Celebration. It all kicks off with a free family festival, Saturday, March 28th at 10 a.m. Dive in the ball pit, see the stilt walkers, and grab some great giveaways, all for free. Imagination Celebration is made possible by Transamerica. More details at prattlibrary.org. I'm Megan McCorkle, and you've been listening to the Free to Be More podcast by the Enoch Pratt Free Library. You can follow the Pratt on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. If you haven't yet, go to Apple Podcasts and subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. Join me next month for another Free to Be More conversation. Thanks for listening.